There's sometimes when you need to applaud what God has done and sometimes when you need to just silently think, you know, God's here. And when God is here, sometimes it requires exuberance on our part and sometimes it requires us to just sit humbly before him and realize how good he really is. The scripture says in Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Good is an interesting word. It's used in a lot of ways in our society. It is uh, as, as used for as many things as you can possibly imagine. I remember when I was uh, growing up, my mom would say something like this, have fun and be good. When you're a teenager, you don't think those two words go together. Fun and good don't seem to go together. Uh, you ever heard anybody say something like this? That's a good man. He's a good boy. That's a good family. Those are good people. That's a good church. You heard this one? Ah, he's just a goody-goody. I remember when I was growing up, nobody knows what this one means anymore, but, you know, somebody would be called a goody two-shoes. Now people look down and go, yeah? <laughs> we use the word good in a number of ways. That was a good meal, good movie, good TV show, good concert, good cholesterol, <laughs> good food, good cheesecake, good cookies, good steak. God is good. Have a good time. We use good in so many different ways. And the word is, quite honestly, very difficult to define because we've attached it to so many things that we have to now say that's pretty good or that's incredibly good. We have to add more adjectives to it rather than just letting the word stand for itself. When you look at the word in Greek or English, it means a number of things. It means desirable. It means honorable. It's a euphemism for God. I, I, this is the thing I like the best. It is the best of everything. Good can be defined as the best of everything. The Greek word agathos is used 102 times in the New Testament. It is a word that talks about good or goodness. Now, when the, the secular writers began to talk about good, they never talked about God. The Jews were the ones who first put goodness and godliness together. The secular writers, they felt like that good was anything that was humanistic. The Stoics felt like if you gained knowledge, you would do good. We know more today than we've ever known, and we're not doing any better. You see, there's a, there's a worldview that says, the more I know, the better I'll do. The truth of the matter is, the more I know, the worse trouble I get into. Uh, knowledge can be good or evil. Just ask yourself that about communications and about the use of phone and media and communication and the Internet. It can be a wonderful thing or it can be an evil thing. And you and I must understand what good is, but man has a concept of good that's not good. And I want to give you four summary statements about man's concept of good. Number one, man believes that good is the experience of pleasure. 
As long as it feels good, looks good, tastes good, it is good. Man believes that good is the experience of pleasure. In other words, there's nothing in our lives that is unpleasurable. The second thing that man does is he thinks good is the eradication of pain. I talked to a couple this morning in our church that are uh, going through a crisis, and, and we had a time of prayer with them at the beginning, and they're going through a very, very dark valley in their lives. And the first thing the husband said to me after the service was over and after we'd had a time of prayer, he said this, he said, you know, he said, God's been good because nothing showed this. Just something happened two and a half weeks ago that if it had not happened, we wouldn't know this right now. And even in the middle of this, God's been good. I'll tell you something, folks. The eradication of pain does not make life good. God is the one that makes life good. Life is full of pain. Man had a good garden to live in. And he had in the planted in the garden a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there with the presence of God in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he chose evil. He was not a robot. He had a free choice. And he chose to do evil. So it's not the eradication of pain. In fact, sometimes we choose to do the very things that are ultimately painful for us. We make wrong choices, thinking they will help us when in fact they hurt us. The third thing is, not only is good the uh, experience of pleasure, man thinks it's the eradication of pain, but thirdly, it's the acquisition of things or knowledge. If I could just get a degree, then I would be happy and things would be good. And there are a lot of people that have got degrees and some of them move back into your homes because <laughs> they can't get a job. That's an old me, not an amen. <laughs> well, you know, if I could just get more knowledge and you find out the world's not going to pay you anymore with all that extra knowledge. Or things. If I could just get more stuff, then life would be good. If I could get that car or that house, and we, we were in Memphis a week or so ago, and we were driving in an exclusive neighborhood. Uh, we had eaten lunch at this place, and we were just driving around, and we went by this house, and I, you know, I'm not good at measuring houses, but this was a big house. I mean, there's not a house in Albany, Georgia, anywhere in Albany, that couldn't fit inside this one and have walking around room. I mean, this house was about 18,000 square feet. You know, they had 40-foot willow trees brought in and planted by the man-made creek that ran through the property. And, and a brick bridge, huge brick bridge, about as long as this auditorium is wide. And I've got to admit, I thought for a moment, that looks good. <laughs> and then I got real sick because I thought of what the mortgage payment must be on a thing like that. They financed those homes for 500 years, not 30 years. <laughs> Low monthly payments. Man thinks if I could just have things and if I could just have knowledge, things would be good. And we buy those things and just about the time we get through paying Sears for them, they're out of date. They're no good anymore. Something better has come out. And now we want that. Number four, man also thinks that good is found in having all you want when you want it. That's why we're a credit card society. I can just put it on a credit card. I can have all I want when I want it. I just, want to th I just want to give you a frightening thought. 
do you realize that some of you are paying interest on socks and underwear? I mean, you went to the department store and you bought that stuff and, and you know, and I just want you to know, every time you put those socks on, it's costing you more money. You see, we think, well, I've got to have it now. I want it now. I need it now. So I can get this little card and it won't cost me anything until next month. Oh, it's costing you. But you see, we're a have it now, want it now society. And we think, we think if we can get that, life will be good. And we know that's not true because every time we pay bills, we get in the flesh. And we gripe and we complain and our children leave the room, the dogs go under the bed. I mean, everybody gets out of the way because they know what life's like while you're living the good life. The scripture has a lot to say about good. This word used 102 times uh, is used in a number of ways. Jesus was called a good teacher. The man approached him and wanted to know how to have eternal life. He was called a good teacher. Jesus said in Luke uh, chapter 8, he talked about the seed falling on good ground. God is essentially good according to Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Luke 18. We are to prove what is good in Romans 12. We are to do good in Romans 13, Galatians 6, and 1 Peter 3. We're to follow after good in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're to imitate good in 3 John verse 11. We're to overcome evil with it in Romans 12 and 21. You see, there's a distinguishing characteristic between kindness and goodness. Goodness has some stern qualities to it. We have laws in this country because it's for the good of society. If every man does what's right in his own eyes and there's no king in Israel, you've got the book of Judges and you have chaos. You don't have freedom and goodness, you have bondage. And so we have things that are good for the society as a whole. You do things in your family for the good of the family, not just for the good of the one individual. I say this because she's not here. My youngest daughter has a very limited food group range. And we have finally reached the point where we have lost all passion and compassion. And we are now saying, we know what you like to eat, but it's not good for the rest of us, and we're not going there. We're going to go where we want to eat because it's good for the rest of us. Oh, I tell you, there's some sternness. You remember, you remember when your parents said, this will be good for you, take it? You remember that cough syrup that it was like used motor oil when it went down your throat? And your mom and dad said, this is good for you. This will make you feel better. You feel like you're going to die before you get it down. But it was good for you. Terry's grandmother used to take, what was it, castor oil? Every day, castor oil. Oh, I'd rather spend 500 years in purgatory than take castor oil every day. I mean, good grief. But it was good for you. Oh, it's good for you. I guess it gets the hairballs out. I don't know. <laughs> but there's a stern quality to goodness because there are laws and boundaries for us that are good. Stop signs are good. Red lights are good. Laws are good. Why? Because it tells us what's acceptable. It tells us how far you can go. It tells you how to best benefit your neighbor. And part of what's happened in our society is we've forgotten that goodness does have some barriers. 
It is an active virtue, not a passive response. It is a disposition that has to find expression. Goodness is an active virtue. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 9, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Romans 15 commands Christians to be filled with joy and peace and goodness and knowledge. What Scripture confirms is that goodness is directly related to God. In other words, for God's definition of goodness, there is godliness. For there is no goodness without God, and there is no godliness without a resulting goodness. George Bethune makes a great statement about this when he says, The best practical definition of goodness is given in the life and character of Jesus Christ, who went about doing good. Four summation statements concerning good from God's perspective. Number one, God is good. I don't care what you've been through, where you've been, if you've experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ and the grace and the mercy and forgiveness of God, you must say God is good. God is a good God. Secondly, not only is God good, but everything God does is good. Now, God is the master of the understatement. Jesus went about doing good. You think that's an understatement for all that Jesus did? I mean, feeding 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and fish, that's doing good. <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, that'd even make hard copy. You know, he went about doing good. Genesis chapter 1, he put the sun in the sky, and he said, that's good. He put the moon, and he divided the day into night and day and said, that's good. He formed the earth and the seas, and he said, that's good. I don't know who he said it to. Wasn't anybody around to hear it except the angels and God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, but he said it. He put all the stars in the sky and put the great expanse of the universe and he made the Milky Way and made all the other galaxies. And, of course, I love what Ron Dunn says about that. He says, you know, somebody says, why did God go, all, God go to all that problem to do all that if there's just life on one planet? To which the answer is, what problem? He just spoke it into existence. He didn't have to lift a finger. He just said it and it was done. And he said, that's good. And he made the fish of the sea and the animals of the land, and he said, that's good. And he made man, and he said, that's good. Then he looked at man, and man was alone, and he said, that's not good. And he created woman. And man said, that's good. <laughs> Everything God does is good. Now, don't you think if God had put us in charge, we would have said it a little differently. This is incredible. This is unbelievable. It's magnificent. We've got our cameras here. Everything's supernatural. You can't believe it. And God just says, that's good. So good's a big word with God. It is a significant and substantial word in his vocabulary. In fact, that's the only word he ever used for everything he ever made. Good. So if it's good enough for God, it ought to be good enough for us. Everything God does is good. Everything God says is good. 
Psalm 119, verse 39 says, Thy ordinances are good. If God says it is good, it is for our good, for our protection, or for our blessing. Thine ordinances are good. And then finally, everything about God's will is good. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, and Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Now, why is there a lack of goodness? C.S. Lewis says, No man knows how bad he is until he's tried to be good. You remember when you were a little kid? And your mom said, if you'll be good all day, there'll be a reward at the end of the day. That was the longest day of your life. Because you kept wondering, how am I going to be good all day long? And you probably went to your mom and dad and had this kind of, how about just until breakfast? Could I be good just until breakfast? How, how about until lunch? And then you started feeling yourself losing it. You said, you know, do I have to be good all day? Could we negotiate? How about a little good today and a little good tomorrow and I get the reward now? You see, the reason we lack goodness is, first of all, because this world is filled with good and evil. Remember the garden. God created it. He said that's good. God created man. He put man in the garden with the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and man chose evil. Isn't that the story of mankind? Man has through history chosen war and strife and prejudice and being at odds with one another because there is a battle going on between good and evil. Secondly, most people choose to define good in material terms. Now, we've talked about it already. What I've got, what I hope to get, what I hope to gain, everything is humanistic and man-centered. It's in material terms. I have the good life because I have good things. The writer of Ecclesiastes said, man, I got it all. But it was vanity, chasing after the wind. And he came to the conclusion after having it all and seeing it all and doing it all, the writer of Ecclesiastes said, remember your creator in the days of your youth. You see, we define good in material, material terms, but you see, it's not good if God's not in it, if God's not a part of it. Number three, another reason why we like goodness is this world doesn't applaud goodness. This world doesn't applaud goodness. Now, occasionally we will applaud a good Samaritan or a good deed. I was watching uh, the news the other night, and there's a, a little, little boy in, that lives in a homeless shelter in Miami. Did any of you see this story? He lives in a homeless shelter in Miami with his mother and his two brothers. All they've got is the clothes on their back. He's going through a grocery store in Miami, a Safeway grocery store, and he finds a wallet with $60 in it full of credit cards. And he turned it in. And it made national news. Because one kid did good. You know what that says? That says we assume that kids are going to do bad. You see, you find out about the kids who are on drugs and the kids who are in gangs and the kids who are doing all this kind of stuff. We find out all the junk that's going on, but we never see the good stuff. You know, there are other kids who turn in those kind of things. This little boy said all I ever wanted was a bicycle. Man, people have given him bicycles and he's had clothes sent to him and all these kind of things have happened to him. And they ask his mother, they why, why did he do that? She said, because I've taught him to do what's right. And you see, the good Samaritan is always the exception. For every three that pass by, one will stop. The Good Samaritan's always the exception. Why isn't it the rule? You see, this world assumes 
that people are going to be bad. And then we get caught up in these situations where the world doesn't applaud goodness, and when it does, it's on the rare occasion. Now let me ask you something. If a little boy in Albany, Georgia, were to pick up a wallet in the street and to return it to the owner, or a 14-year-old were to rob a convenience store, what do you think would be the lead story? It's because we don't applaud goodness. Goodness doesn't sell. Goodness doesn't get accolades. And yet God says, I notice every good deed. I notice everything done. I notice what's good that's going on. Uh, Archie and Edith Bunker were having a discussion. Great saints of the state of New York. And they were having a discussion, and Archie said, you ought to try living with a saint. You never swear, you never get mad, you never get even, you're always going about doing good. You ought to try, you make me miserable, you ought to try living with a saint. You're not a human being. And Edith said, well, Archie, I'm as much of a human being as you are. And he said, prove it, Edith, prove it. If you're as much of a human being as I am, do something rotten. You see, we just assume that everybody's going to do what's rotten. The world doesn't applaud goodness. The day the world starts applauding goodness will be the day when Jesus Christ has come in and taken over and removed the presence of evil. Now, there's another one. We're in a battle between good and evil. Romans 7 talks about that battle being within. You see, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The Scripture says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have each one have turned to our own way. This business of inherent goodness is a heresy. There is a bad, evil nature that has to be overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're in a battle between good and evil. And yet God has called us, if we are Christians, to be good. Now, what must I do to be good? Turn to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. What must I do to be good? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. The first thing you'll find there is that goodness is a gift from God. Goodness is a gift from God. What must I do to be good? Well, I can't be good on my own. Goodness is a gift from God. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Number two, it is the result of life in the Spirit. If I am good, by God's definition of good, it is the result of life in the Spirit. It is God who is at work in you. If you're good, it's God. Because there's no mixed motive there. It's just an overflow of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Number three, it's God that gives me the desire to be good. Notice, it is God who is at work in you both to will. I don't have the desire to be good unless God puts it in me. In other words, when God gets a hold of the inside, it starts showing up on the outside. When God gets in me, he starts to work through me. When God is good and he is good in me, then he starts to work good through me. He gives me the desire and he gives me the power. It is God both to will and 
to work for his good pleasure. Titus chapter 3 and verse 14 says, And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. You see, what I do is because of who I am. So what are the steps to cultivating goodness in your life? Number one, decide to obey God's will. Decide to obey God's will. You see, if I want to be good, I have to be walking in God's will. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. So if I'm in God's will, I'm doing what's good, what is right to do. Scripture says knowing what is right to do and not doing it is what? A sin. So if I want to do good, if I want goodness to be a part of my life, then I must be willing and desirous to do God's will. Secondly, not only decide to obey God's will, but discipline your heart. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul is praying for the Christians, and he says in that prayer that they would fulfill every desire for goodness. Now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We looked at this a couple of Sunday nights ago. But I want you to see three times in 1 Timothy 1 where Paul uses the phrase good, the term good, that which is a euphemism of God, the best of everything, the honorable, the desirable, the loyal things. 1 Timothy 5, chapter 1 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look at the last part of verse 18. Fight the good fight. Paul told Timothy, don't get involved in things that don't matter. Fight the good fight. Verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience. Now, verse 5, he's mentioned a good conscience. And verse 19, he's mentioned a good conscience. The discipline of your heart is to fulfill every desire of goodness, to have a good conscience and to fight the good fight. That requires discipline. You see, you and I are a heartbeat away from what we'll be from all, for all eternity. I got a call yesterday from a young lady that was very involved in our youth group at, at Roswell Street, and she called me at 5.30 yesterday afternoon just crying, and she said, my dad dropped dead of a heart attack this morning. Will you come do the funeral? All of us are one heartbeat away from eternity. None of us know when the day or the hour will come. None of us know the moment. But all of us are just one second, one breath away from all eternity. Therefore, in light of that, I should do everything I can to fulfill every desire for goodness, and I should have a good conscience and fight a good fight. Number three, develop convictions. Now turn to Romans chapter 12. I want us to look at two verses in Romans chapter 12. Develop convictions. Now there's a difference between a conviction and an opinion. Uh, we played in a church golf tournament yesterday, and we had a couple of putts that uh, one would be on one side of the cup and the other would be on the other side of the cup, and kind of look at it, and everybody kind of look at each other and say, well, what do you think? Which one do you think we ought to do? Now, I've got an opinion about which putt we should make. You know, I, I mean, I just do. Now, if it pulled a gun out and said, now, which putt? I'd say, whichever one you want to take. See, I've got an opinion about a putt. I don't have a conviction about it. My conviction is, 
you can putt for me. <laughs> if you're going to pull a gun to my head, just putt for me. I, I don't want to have to make that decision because I don't have a conviction about it. But God says we're supposed to develop some convictions. God's Word leads us to convictions, Romans 12 and verse 9. Command, written by Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, just ask yourself a question. Are you trying to live up to that verse in the power of the Holy Spirit or are you looking for loopholes? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Now, verse 9, he says we're to abhor evil. And when we abhor evil, we cling to what is good. In verse 21, he says we are to not be overcome by evil, and the way we overcome evil is with good. Now, that means we develop convictions. Let me just talk about that a little bit. It's as practical as anything can be. If I want to do something about the evil in this world, I just start doing good things. We abhor evil, we embrace and cling to good. We overcome evil with good. Now, I want you to picture Jesus Christ is on earth for 33 and a half years. God in flesh coming down to live among his people and to provide salvation from sin. God to set things back in order. The old Adam has blown it. The new Adam is coming to set things right. There's an old man and a new man. At the cross, sin is going to be dealt with once and for all. He chooses to come as a baby. He is helpless and at the mercy of his mother and his father. God in flesh has to grow and has to learn as a man. He is all God and all man, but he has to develop and learn as a man. When Jesus Christ was three years old as a man, he didn't know how to drive a car. <laughs> had to learn that when he was a teenager. You see, God grew, and for 30 years, he stayed at home and honored his father and mother and went to church and basically did no miracles. And yet he's on a plan and a path for world redemption. And then when he gets on the path of world redemption, he only has three years to train fishermen how to lead the largest organization on the face of the earth. He does not do it the right way. He stops and talks to people. He takes time for people. He eats breakfast with people. He goes around talking to people and ministering to people. He goes out of his way to go through Samaria when it was never considered out of the way to go around Samaria for one woman to tell her about how she should worship God. I mean, one woman's already been married five times and the one man she's with is not her husband. I mean, why, if you were God, would you waste your time on that woman when there's so many other people to deal with? But he did. And the leper, 
And the woman who reached out and touched the hem of his garment, who had been to doctor after doctor after doctor, and he stopped in the crowd and he said, Who touched me? And the disciples said, Lord, everybody throngs you. How can you ask who touches you? And he said, Because power has gone out of me. And he stops in the middle of his movement through town until he finds the woman that's touched him. He's got time for this. He's got time for little people and insignificant moments. Then he goes to the cross, and on his way to the cross, he's got time to stop and eat at Mary and Martha's house, and just to fellowship with his disciples, and to spend time with God. He's not too busy to spend time with his Father. He goes to the cross, he dies, he rises from the grave, and he's around for 40 days, well, you know what he would do during those 40 days. If he was smart, he would have gone to Pilate's house on a big white charger horse with his armor and his sword and said, Pal, the party's over. I'm taking charge. He would have gone to Caiaphas' house and said, You made fun of me, buddy, but it's over for you. Your history. But he didn't do that. When you see Jesus with 40 days left to help the disciples understand what will happen when the Holy Spirit comes, that he is in fact resurrected and he's about to ascend to his Father and he will come back one day, in those 40 days he stops and he takes a little walking trip with a man and woman on the road to Emmaus. And he begins to talk about the Bible with them and carry on a conversation with them. He stops and he fixes breakfast. Why in the world... Would God, with an eternal agenda, stop to fix breakfast? Because God's trying to show us something. In the 30 years before he identified himself as the Messiah, he's trying to tell us you can hammer nails to the glory of God. And doing what God has equipped you to do and what you've been trained to do in your everyday life is good if you do it to the glory of God. And then, from the three years that he taught the disciples, he was trying to teach them, it's what you do with people that matters. And then after the cross, he's trying to tell them, it's what you do with people that matters. He says to Peter, he says, feed my sheep. Take the time to feed the sheep. Now, we would have never organized worldwide redemption that way, but the God who is good sent his son and said, do little things. Stop along the way. Talk to the lepers. Bind up the brokenhearted. Minister to the hurting. Do you have a conviction that that's what goodness is? You see, goodness for us is too often, what's it going to do for me? And how am I going to be recognized if it's good? You see, a conviction of goodness says, I'm more interested in other people and how it affects them than I'm interested in how it affects me. Oh, I tell you, God just messes up our value system, doesn't he? Because you see, God, if he were here, and he is if he lives inside of you, would spend this next week finding ways to do good. He would stop along the road and help.
he would cook breakfast for somebody who is sick. He'd take a meal to somebody's house. He'd write a card. He would be an encouragement. He would be a blessing. He would do good. But you see, you only do that when you've got a conviction about what goodness is. See, God is good, and God does little things, practical things, and He says we overcome evil with good. Boy, I I tell you, let me watch my time here. Woo, we're getting late. Be good if you'd get through by noon, preacher. (laughs) You overcome evil with good. How are we ever going to turn America back to God? Boy, we hear a lot about that. A lot of preachers selling a lot of books on how to get America back to God. You want to know how to do it? Do good. So I don't know what that means. I'll tell you what it means. It means that there are some folks at Sherwood Baptist Church that have a good reputation in this community. You know who they are? There's some very frail and sick and weak people who go and sit in a waiting room and wait for their radiation and chemotherapy treatments, and they minister to people around them who are going through the same crisis. And the people in that waiting room always know when somebody from Sherwood is there because there seems to be an attitude of, how can we help you? while we go through the same thing. That's what good is. You know what good is? It's knowing when to let people have some time and knowing when they need you. It's writing a card. It's making a phone call. It's sitting down in here and writing prayer cards to people. That's what good is. Good is a kid that needs some help and you help him. Good is somebody that needs somebody and... And you're that somebody, and you come in and minister to their life. You develop convictions that you're here for others. Let's move on real quickly. First of all, you you develop convictions, then you direct your life. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You direct your life. Number five, you depend on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit conquers the flesh, and the Holy Spirit produces fruit. You depend on the Holy Spirit. How am I going to do all this? Holy Spirit's going to do it through you. Number six, you delight in the fact that God keeps the books that count. Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8, And with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Galatians 6 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. God keeps the books that count. I don't know how he does that. I don't know how he does it for every one of us. But I know this, God keeps the books that count. Everything you've done in the name of Jesus, every cup of cold water, every good deed, every kind word, every act of grace that you've extended to somebody else, God says, I take note of that. Don't be weary in doing good. 
Because there's going to come a day of harvest when you're going to reap a blessing if you don't give up. Ephesians 6 says, God notices and what you give, you receive. You know who gets the most? The people who give the most. You know who receives the greatest blessing? The people who give the greatest blessings. There's a little book out called A Return to Virtue by Bell and Campbell. It's got some excellent stuff in there on different virtues that we're supposed to have and moral character that we're supposed to have on how to live wisely. But there's a chapter in here called The Apple Doesn't Fall Far from the Tree. This is what they say. Is anything much more disappointing than buying exquisite-looking apples only to discover at home that the cardboard packaging has more flavor? Sometimes we think we've discovered good fruit only to be severely disappointed when we discover the truth. The same is true of people. Some dress themselves up, speak with silver tongue ease, and pass themselves off as the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. But if they are up to no good, they will be found out eventually. Similarly, a good person might have a somewhat brash, crude, or otherwise suspicious exterior. Yet he or she always seems to come through during times of need. Goodness, or lack of it, drives a person's actions. Nothing can keep goodness hidden for long if it's there, or pass for goodness if it's absent. A person's true nature is like an aroma. The closer you get, the better you can determine whether it's pleasant or obnoxious. And then this last paragraph. If an outsider witnessed your fruit of the past several weeks and knew nothing else about you, would he or she define you as good? If the answer doesn't agree with the assumptions you're making about yourself, you have some work to do. Would the people around you define you as good? If their answers don't agree with the assumptions you make about yourself, you have some work to do. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. John Wesley said, Do all the good you can, in all the ways you can, to all the souls you can, in every place you can, at all the times you can, with all the zeal you can, as long as ever you can. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Father, we are here assembled this morning in this place, and we desire to know what goodness is from your perspective. Not that others would call us good, but that you would say that what we do and who we are is good because the Holy Spirit is working himself out in our lives. Lord, I pray for people who are here this morning who need to have Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, who may have come into this place, listened to this message, and come expecting for God to hate them. But God is good. 
In His goodness, He came in Jesus Christ, and in His grace, He saved us. And Lord, we thank You for the goodness of salvation. Lord, I pray that today, that those that need to make a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ would have the willingness and the desire, the want to, to do it because of what You've done for them. Lord, I pray for people who are visiting this church and who are looking for a place to call home. I pray that their experiences have been good as they've listened to your people here, as they've walked among us, as they've watched us and observed us, and that they would want to be a part of a place that they consider to be good.